Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of October 6th, 2022. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. A Season of Learning, History Abounds at Golden's Autumn Fest by Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript. Ralston Elementary kicks off a spooky season, a great boom-immunity event by Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript. Unsealed Affidavit provides accounts of fatal shooting, domestic dispute to blame by Riley Dunn for the Jeffco Transcript. Varinki Borscht und Rolade. Oh my! Ukrainians of Colorado host cooking class by Andrew Fraley for the Jeffco transcript. Arvada Fire Protection District celebrates Fire Safety Day. Annual event returns to in person gathering, kicks off Fire Prevention Month. In the Arvada Press. A Season of Learning, History Abounds at Golden's Autumn Fest by Corinne Westman. For everything, there is a season, and autumn has become the season for immersive learning in downtown Golden. On October 2nd, the Golden History Museum and Park hosted its second annual Autumn Festival, as more than 2,000 attendees discovered an array of things to learn and do on both sides of Clear Creek. In the history park, families experienced a taste of 19th century living with one-room schoolhouse, the blacksmith shop, the heritage gardens, and more. By the museum building, children ran around the fire trucks and participated in arts and crafts. Nathan Ritchie, director of the Golden History Museum and Park, said the museum started the event last year because it wanted to host a big, free, family-oriented event. He thanked the dozens of nonprofits, cultural partners, and volunteers who made the event possible. As her three-year-old son was feeding the History's Park chickens, Heather Asher said she appreciated how spread out all the activities were. It made for a nice walk, and it was easier to navigate without a crowd of people congested in one place, she described. She said her two youngsters were having lots of fun, describing how it was difficult to pull them away from the fire trucks and the manual washing station. I like that it's free, and they have activities for all ages, she continued. From the park, visitors could hear the distant beat of drums and hundreds gathered in the museum parking lot to exchange, to experience the music and dancing of various American Indian tribes. Accompanied by the Westminster-based intertribal drum group Kozad Juniors, Broomfield's Philip Gover and his family and dancers shared their stories and dances with the attendees. The dancers invited attendees to join them for their social dances. Gover said he and his friends have always performed at other events and always, quote, dance for those who can't dance. He said it's important for intertribal dancers to tell their own stories so people can understand their tribe's cultures and histories. He thought the Autumn Fest crowd had good energy, saying attendees were respectful and genuine. Denver's Steve LaPointe, who served as the group's MC, said, It's been a joy. Golden folk are great. While eating their lunch from the crepe food truck outside the museum, Rosie Davenport and Annette Konoski-Graf described how they stumbled onto the event while hanging out in Golden. They went through all the activities and stations, collecting all the stamps to earn them temporary tattoos. The two, who are in their 30s, joked how they were probably the oldest ones to do so. The kids are loving it, Konoski-Graf said, but so are the adults. Ralston Elementary kicks off Spooky Season, a great boom-unity event, by Corinne Westman. For Ralston Elementary School families, Halloween started 30 days early. The Genesee Area School hosted its annual fall festival, October 1st, where young youngsters donned their costumes, collected candy, played games, and enjoyed other activities. Jessica Klingsporn, who 
helped organize this year's event anticipated 650 to 700 attendees throughout the afternoon. The festival is Ralston Elementary's biggest fundraiser. Last year's silent auction raised $18,000 for the school, and Klingsbourne was hoping to reach $20,000 this year. The money goes toward upgrading the school's technology, maintaining full-time arts, music, and physical education teachers, hiring paraprofessionals, and anything else the school might need, she explained. On top of crucial fundraising, the fall festival is always a blast for the students and their families. Kids get their costumes early for the event, she continued. Parents Marianne and Jason Wetzel were operating the first grade class's trunk or treat station. The two used their family's red Jeep, some greenery, inflatable dinosaurs, and zookeeper-like outfits as part of the Jurassic Park theme. Marianne explained how they'd seen a similar idea at another trunk or treat and put the station together with help from other parents. It was the Wetzel's first time at the Fall Fest, with Marianne saying, It's really cool to see the community rallying around the school. Over at the popcorn station, parents Devin and Alexis Statham kept the kernels popping as more and more youngsters stopped by. It was the Statham's second year at the event, with the two describing how they volunteered because it's always fun. Devin said fellow parents always turn out to help put the event together because everyone appreciates all the work the staff puts in throughout the year. For daughter Hadley Four, who was dressed as Sky from Paw Patrol, the event had a different allure. She really enjoyed the candy and playing on the inflatable obstacle courses. Other children shared their excitement for candy and other goodies. Many were clearly enjoying seeing their friends on a Saturday and showing off their Halloween costumes on a, a month early. Hunter Roop, a sixth grader from the Manning School, was sporting an inflatable balloon animal costume as he collected candy at the trunk or treat stations. Hunter's youngest, younger sister attends Ralston Elementary and it was the family's first experience at Fall Fest. Parents Dan and Sarah Roop explained how the family moved here from New Jersey three months ago. So for them, the Fall Fest was, quote, a great way to get involved and get to know other families, Sarah explained. It's a great community event, she said. Unsealed Affidavit provides accounts of fatal shooting, domestic dispute to blame, by Riley Dunn for the Jeffco Transcript. An affidavit filed by Arvada Police Detective Julie Glenn regarding the events of September 11th that led to Officer Dylan Vakoff's murder was unsealed September 26th, shedding light on the events that on the events led to Vakoff's death and the gunshot injuries of Mercedes Lopez and suspect Sonny Almanza, who is in custody. The affidavit describes a contentious custody dispute that led to a fight which escalated into exchanges of gunfire. According to the affidavit, at about 1.45 a.m., Officers D. Garibay and Dylan Vakoff were dispatched to 6753 West 51st Avenue in Arvada on a report of a disturbance over the custody of two children. Destiny Medlock, Sonny Almanza, Almanza's sister, contacted APD for assistance because the mother of the children, Lexis Lexi Lopez, was on her way to the location to take the children back, and Medlock suspected that Lopez was intoxicated. Officers Vakoff and Garibay arrived on the scene and contacted Lopez, who was explaining what was going on to the officers when another vehicle arrived. After that vehicle arrived, a fight broke out in the apartment's parking lot. During the fight, Sonny Almanza retrieved a rifle and came out to the parking lot. Almanza fired a round from the rifle, which struck Mercedes Lopez, Lexi Lopez's sister, in the leg. During the gunfire, Vakoff was fatally shot, according to the arrest affidavit. Almanza was also injured and transported to Denver Health Medical Center, while Mercedes Lopez was transported to St. Anthony Hospital. According to Glenn, Officer Garibay's body camera footage shows that prior to the physical fight, Lexi Lopez asked officers to ask Medlock about guns in her possession and said they pulled an AR-15 on her mother. 
After the shooting, Garibay located Almanza on the ground with gunshot wounds. Later on, at Denver Health Medical Center, Almanza was interviewed by two Arvada police detectives after being advised of his Miranda rights. Almanza said he lives at 6753 West 51st Avenue and recently separated from Lexi Lopez, with whom he has two children. Lopez and Almanza do not have a court-issued custody agreement, but exchange custody mutually. On the evening of September 10th, Lopez had the children with her. Earlier in the morning hours of September 11th, Almanza stated that he was in downtown Denver with Medlock and her husband Jacob Marujo, where Almanza consumed two shots of alcohol. While out, he learned that Lexi Lopez was not with their children and reportedly left them in the care of another family member. Almanza, Medlock, and Marujo then drove to Lopez's mother house in Thornton, where Almanza reportedly found his children in the care of juveniles related to Lopez. Almanza retrieved the children and brought them to 6753 West 51st Avenue with Medlock driving. Almanza reported that he received threatening messages from Lopez indicating that she and her family members were on the way to Arvada with the intent of retrieving the children and beginning an altercation with Almanza. Before they arrived, Medlock called Jeffcom dispatch to request officers to assist. Before Medlock was contacted by responding officers, Marujo received a security notification indicating the door of his residence, also located at 6753 West 51st Avenue in the unit next to Almanza's, had been opened. As Medlock approached the apartment, Almanza said he observed several vehicles belonging to Lopez family and associates parked on the streets near 6753. West 51st Avenue, as well as Lopez's brother Jerry and sister Mercedes. The Lopez approached Medlock's vehicle as it came to a stop in the street. Almanza stated that Marujo was attacked by the Lopez family which after he exited the vehicle, at which point Almanza allegedly tried to intervene. Almanza told detectives he had reason to believe Lopez's family were armed. After being involved in the fight for a few seconds, Almanza allegedly went into his apartment and retrieved an AR-15 assault rifle which he reportedly kept in his kitchen closet. Almanza reported, reportedly fired a shot into the air, at which time Mercedes Lopez ran towards him. When she was about 10 feet from Almanza, he fired a single shot at her, at which point, which point she began screaming and fell to the ground. Almanza continued walking towards the fight, unaware that officers were on the scene. As he approached, Almanza was shot in the hip, pointed the rifle in the direction of the shots, and fired one round. Officer Dylan Bakoff had been shot and fell to the ground. Realizing he shot an officer, Almanza allegedly ran to his backyard and threw the rifle away. When he returned to the front of the apartment, Almanza was taken into custody by another officer. Officer Bakoff was fatally shot in the head and leg. The investigation into the events of September 11th is ongoing. Almanza has been charged with multiple felonies, including three counts of murder in the first degree for Bakoff's death. Almanza is scheduled to appear in court for the second time on October 7th. Vereniki Borscht und Roulade. Oh my! Ukrainians of Colorado host cooking class by Andrew Fraley. Now, whenever you see ravioli, you can call it Italian varenki. Joked chef, chef Bo Poritko at Ukrainians of Colorado's cooking class fundraiser. Hosted on October 2nd, the fundraiser was filled with 42 students, three cooks, and the smells of platinka, bigos, varenki, and borscht. Ukrainians of Colorado is a nonprofit that formed eight years ago in response to the war starting in Ukraine in 2014 when Russia seized Crimea and for the need of a social club for Ukrainians, quote, to exchange ideas, preserve our heritage, our language, and help Ukraine. President of the group of Marina Dubrova said, the cooking class was one way to do just that. It had Tetiana Dratilat, a private culinary chef in Kiev, who only arrived in Colorado a few months ago, preparing platinka, a braided poppy seed bread, 
with students rolling out the dough and braiding the bread themselves. Before long, Natalia Dunn, who said she'd never taught a cooking class before, had made a potato dish with bacon and crushed onions for everyone to try before starting borscht from scratch. The most involved for the class might have been Puritko's Bigos, Valeniki, or Pyorgis. After making the dough, people were shorn, shown how to roll and cut out the circles to then f wrap the Varenki, Varenki in, filling in. Poritko, who's also the head chef of Misfit's Snack Bar, had to find another pan because, as he'd put it, he'd created a Varenki-making monster. Katya McGee, a Lakewood resident whose grandparents immigrated to the U.S. from Ukraine, said she makes plenty of Ukrainian food at home, but was sure she could learn more. It's definitely a great way to get more exposure to different stories. You're able to listen to everyone, said Elvis Dunn, who is from Odessa, Ukraine, and moved to Colorado in 2014 on the more social aspects. Also on the menu for Paritko was chicken Kiev roulade, a core of butter, garlic, paprika, and parsley wrapped with pounded chicken thighs before being breaded and fried. Students were able to pound and wrap their own. At the same time, Paritko made the point that Ukrainian cuisine is not one cuisine, but many. Just as food is different from north to south, here due to climate, the same goes for Ukraine. He gave the example of South Ukraine, which he compares to Florida, not using many root vegetables due to the summer climates as up north, which he compares to Colorado. Ukrainian music filled the air alongside the smells of food as people finally sat to eat their creations. We drink a lot, we dance a lot, said Dubrova as wine and vodka was passed out for the Vareniki, Borscht, and veg vegetarian and meat and roulade. Arvada Fire Protection District celebrates Fire Safety Day. Annual event returns to in-person gathering kicks off Fire Prevention Month. The Arvada Fire Protection District hosted its annual Fire Safety Day on October 1st at the Arvada Fire Training Center, hosting live demonstrations, tours, and educational activities to help folks learn about fire mitigation and kick off Fire Prevention Month, which the department is observing throughout October. Fire Safety Day featured demonstrations of a live burn from the National Fire Sprinkler Association, a helicopter landing from Fight for Life, Flight for Life, and a seatbelt simulator ride provided by St. Anthony's Hospital and Colorado State Patrol. Stuffed Animal First Aid and Obstacle courses were some of the activities geared toward kids. The event was open to the public and free of charge. The themes of this year's Fire Prevention Month is Fire Won't Wait, Have an Escape, encouraging people to have an escape plan that they can rely on in case of a fire. Our hope is that they come and join us and leave, join, join us and leave with a number of risk reduction messages so they take action to save lives. AFPD Battalion Chief Deanna Harrington said, we want our community to thrive, so it's a great way to bring together many partners who share our mission of reducing risk. It's just a great day for education and spending time with local firefighters. AFPD firefighters will be visiting schools throughout the month of October to promote fire safety education. Nonprofit coffee truck brews opportunities for Coloradans with special needs by Dana Knowles and Julio Sandoval of Rocky Mountain PBS. Even though 26-year-old Paige Gray was born with special needs, her mother Karen says Paige and her friends are special in so many other ways. Karen and Paige and others with intellectual and developmental disabilities, IDD, quote, have the biggest hearts and in society today. They're open-minded, they care, Karen said. Paige is one of several ambassadors for Tall Tales Ranch in Centennial, a nonprofit that supports people with autism, Down syndrome, and other intellectual and developmental disabilities. 
I feel like it's important to make new friends because out in the world, you never know who wants to be your friend or who you want to hang out with. And it's really fun to explore the world out here to find people that you can hang out with, Paige said. The main goal of Tall Tales Ranch is to start a community in Lone Tree where people with IDD can live with those who don't have disabilities. While the community is being built, the organization is helping the ambassadors with on-the-job training by teaching them how to manage and operate a coffee truck that will eventually travel around the Denver metro area. It feels so good. This is my first time making coffee, Paige added with a laugh. It feels good to be involved in helping out. Quote, we've learned so much about our ambassadors, our friends living with special needs, how capable they are, and how much they want to be a part of the community, explained Susan Mooney, one of the founders of Tall Tales Ranch. They want to be productive, they want to have jobs, and it's very difficult to find employment for them in a space that's willing to make accommodations, Mooney continued, adding that adults with special needs have unique skills and talents that need to be recognized and utilized. Studies show that less than 40% of people with IDD have paid employment, and many of those workers are underpaid. However, several companies with Colorado employment employ workers with IDD, like Dirt Coffee in Littleton, Pizzability in Inglewood, Jack's Steamers in Arvada, and Festive Co Cup Coffee in Highlands Ranch. Mooney and her husband, Pat, started Tall Tales Ranch eight years ago after their son, Ross, was diagnosed with a genetic condition called adrenoleukodystrophy at the age of 14. Ross received a bone marrow transplant to stop the progression and afterwards his parents wanted to find more ways for Ross to engage with the outside world, make friends, work a job, and live as normal of a life as possible. That's how Tall Tales Ranch was born. To now see it come to fruition and make it see it change people's lives makes me so happy. Mooney said, and I love being able to give them the opportunity. If given the opportunity, they will just shine. Sammy Summers is also an ambassador for the Tall Tales Ranch. Summers said the best part of her experience is working with her friends. We want to be like the regular community and have jobs, and I'm super happy and can't wait to get started, Summers said. Let's rock Tall Tales Ranch. This story is from Rocky Mountain PBS, a nonprofit public broadcaster providing community stories across Colorado over the air and online, used by permission. For more and to support Rocky Mountain PBS, visit rmpbs.org. EPA says no way out of reformulated gas. Colorado threatens to sue in 2024 by Michael Booth of the Colorado Sun. The Environmental Protection Agency can't let Colorado off the hook for imposing more expensive reformulated gas to fight ozone pollution beginning in 2024, the agency said in a reply to Governor Jared Polis' objections and threats to sue. The gas, which produces fewer ozone-contributing fumes, should cost about three cents a gallon more than normal gas formulations, according to an EPA review. The EPA's Washington headquarters told Polis that the Clean Air Act, dating to the 1990s, requires all penalized areas, like the nine counties of the Northern Front Range, to switch to reformulated gas when the agency declares them in, quote, severe non-attainment for lung-damaging ozone. The change in classification also requires Colorado's Air Pollution Control Division to lower the threshold for stationary sources that must apply for permits to 25 tons of pollutants from the current 50 tons. Air pollution control officials have said that it will add at least 400 new permits to an already backlogged system. The Clean Air Act provisions requiring the sale of reformulated gas in areas reclassified as severe and the timing of those requirements are clear. National EPA Administrator Michael Regan wrote to Polis. Regan did say the EPA will try to work with Colorado on implementation and noted the state has, quote, 20 months of lead time to prepare. The Polis administration did not back down it from its objections after hearing from the EPA. Governor Polis has been clear that he will pursue all legal strategies to avoid this outdated and ineffective requirement for reformulated gasoline. Spokesman Connor Cahill said, 
It's clear that this outdated policy would negatively impact Colorado's most vulnerable, rewind environmental justice efforts, and raise costs on people when they need their money most. The bull's objection letter said the reformulated gas mandate has the, quote, potential to exacerbate long-standing historic environmental injustices in communities near regional refineries. The mandate raises serious environmental justice questions, again, particularly given the lack of realized benefits that accompany it. Suncor is the only major refinery in Colorado and likely the one that would supply reformulated gas. While environmental groups and community leaders have asked the Polis administration to phase out Suncor's Commerce City location altogether, air pollution regulators have recently required more stringent air monitoring at Suncor's fence line and put new conditions on long-delayed permit renewals. Polis' letter said new construction required to supply reformulated gas and higher production, production levels could hamper air quality progress in those neighborhoods. While environmental groups do not believe reformulated gas will do much to solve the northern front range ozone problems, because current everyday formulations are much cleaner than when the 1990s law was passed, they also dismissed the polis objections as re-election theater. There's no way out of it. It's going to happen, said Jeremy Nichols of Wild Earth Guardians. Colorado knew the ozone downgrade was coming for years, and Nichols likened the state's reaction to a high school senior failing all their classes and then complaining they couldn't graduate. Quote, if Governor Polis truly cared about clean air and avoiding RFG, he'd direct the Air Division to everything in their power to clean up ozone in the region and either avoid a severe classification or at least get out of it as quickly as possible, Nick Nichols said. Instead, the Air Division has offered up an ozone cleanup plan that it admits will fail. The advocates and allies among metro area elected officials want the state to speed up the transition to lower emission vehicles, pause air polluting, pollution permitting, and put more restrictions on front-range oil and gas drillings as keys to reducing ozone faster. The state's proposals so far do not include those extras or other recommend those others recommended by clean air coalitions. Quote, Pollution is now bad enough that more federal environmental protections are kicking in which is exactly why the Clean Air Act exists in the first place, said Jacob Smith of Colorado Communities for Climate Action, a coalition of 40 local governments. Trying to avoid the rules will mean it takes longer, costs more, and leaves more people sick. The quickest path to not needing federal air quality protections is for Colorado to actually clean up the air we breathe. The new state implementation plan for ozone attainment that Polis highlighted in his original letter to the EPA acknowledges up front that Colorado can't meet tighter 2015 standards by a 2024 deadline, noted Catherine Goff, a North Glen City Council member and vice president of the community's coalition. There are enormous emission sources that Colorado could clean up right now that would make a huge difference, but the proposed plan largely ignores them, she said. Suncor said on September 28th it is working on a $36 million project to be ready to produce reformulated gas by the 2024 summer driving season and that they have state health department approval. The Regional Air Quality Council estimates that the new gas will reduce ozone contri contributing emissions by 200 tons a year, Suncor said. The price differential will be is not clear, Suncor added, since much of it depends on how many other suppliers bring reformulated gas into the front-range market. Suncor said it currently produces about one-third of Colorado's gasoline, half of the state's diesel fuel, and 30% of the jet fuel for Denver International Airport. If you can't have a pet... Have a plant. Local life. Gardeners and neuroscientists talk benefits of houseplants by Elliot Winsler. Maddie Barber had never been able to keep a plant from dying. Then one day, her mother gave her a succulent. I was like, you know what? I'm going to make this thing live, she said. Now, Two years later, the Metropolitan State University of Denver's seniors collection has grown significantly. 
One succulent turned into 50 succulents that are all over my house, everywhere, she said. A psychology student interested in research, Barber has been become fascinated by the mental health benefits of fostering a plant's growth and has designed an experiment she hopes to conduct on fellow college students. While there's still more research to be done on houseplants, the studies that exist so far show vast benefits from developing a green thumb. Neuroscientists don't yet know the reason for the impact, but some surmise it could be from our inherent desire to connect with the environment. It may be that humans are essentially evolved to live in, in nature, and it's really been only recently we've been stuck inside, said Cynthia Erickson, an MSU professor with a PhD in neuroscience and psychology. There is something to caring for something and nurturing something. When you have responsibility for something else, it kind of forces you to take better care of yourself. The research. In one Korean study, researchers looked at the impacts of plant care for patients who had recently had their appendix removed. 90 patients were randomly assigned to hospital rooms with and without plants. They found that those with plants and flowers in their room took significantly fewer pain medications and had lower ratings of anxiety and fatigue compared to those in the control group. In another, researchers in Europe looked at the impact greenery had on students' mental health during the midst of COVID-19 pandemic. They found that visible greenery, including houseplants of a garden, were associated with reduced depression and anxiety symptoms. Students who spent most of their time at home during the COVID-19 epidemic experienced better mental health when exposed to more greenery, according to the study. So far, there are mixed results on how much fake plants create benefits, Erickson said. When you check on your plants and they grow, it's kind of a feeling of satisfaction, she said. Erickson's students recently completed their own study, which looked at the stress levels for pet and plant owners. What we found was that it wasn't necessary to have something to take on a walk, she said. It was just having some kind of other animal, some kind of other living being in your environment. Pets are definitely a plus, but if you can't have a pet, have a plant. Erickson said that while she doesn't recommend someone struggling with a mental health diagnosis forego other treatments and simply buy a houseplant, it can't hurt to add one in. There's no side effects of having a plant, and it's relatively inexpensive, and it doesn't take lots of lots of time, she said. If you kill your plant, it's not the end of the world. Getting started. During the height of the pandemic, local garden supply workers such as Dakota Jones from Tagawa Garden and Centennial said they saw a significant increase in folks interested in houseplants and gardening. The increase in sales and interest since COVID has hit has been, I think, at least 200%, said Jones, who is the supervisor and buyer for Tagawa's indoor plant section. For many of those trying out their green thumb, Jones has one main recommendation. Start with one plant at a time. A lot of people want to jump in and spend a whole bunch of cash, and then they're just disappointed, he said. Just take it slow. As far as what to buy, the snake plant, the spider plant, and succulents are usually good for beginners. Those trendy plants may not be a great place to start, said Becky Atkinson, a plant doctor with Ector's Nursery and Garden Center in Arvada. Atkinson said she has seen many people buying the popular fiddle leaf fig plants, but then calling in with many questions. They can be fussy and are prone to getting brown spots, she said. I wouldn't recommend that one for a beginner plant owner. caring for plants. When talking with beginners, Jones makes sure to focus on the importance of lights and watering when caring for houseplants. I always try to end with watering, he said. I want that to be the precious thing in their mind. When it comes to watering, it's important not to do too much or too little. Atkinson said she's seen many cases of people killing their plants with kindness. I always tell people, stick your finger in the pot before you water, Atkinson said. Don't water 
on a schedule, water on the needs of the plants, which can vary by season. Another way to determine if the plant is getting the right amount of is to spend time looking at how it's changing. Your leaves will tell you everything you need to know about your plant, Joan said. With too much water, the leaves become pruny or mushy. If dry and flaky, flaky, it means they haven't had enough. The direction that the plant is moving may also indicate if it's getting enough light. Succulents will start growing long, searching for more light if they're not getting enough. Succulents, gardenias, and hibiscus like lots of direct light. Things like zanzibar and ivy don't need as much. Certain ferns also demand lots of light and may thrive in a more humid setting like a bathroom or kitchen, John said. For other plants that need more humidity than Colorado provides, Jones recommended trying out misting plants so they can absorb moisture through their leaves. Every plant has its own personality, Jones said. It's just like people. If all else fails, Jones and Atkinson both recommend bringing photos and a description of your houseplant issue to a local garden shop to ask an expert. If you see something going wrong, we like to try to help you fix it before it comes fatal, Atkinson said. Rosenberry Lecture Series Returns to In-Person Coming Attractions by Clark Reader Everybody missed different things when the COVID-19 pandemic forced the world to go virtual. For some, it was the concerts at their favorite venues. Others, movies at their local silver screen. And for others, still, it was getting to hear in person from some of the country's leading historians. Fortunately for those in the final category, History Colorado has relaunched the in-person version of its Rosenberry Lecture series. The series kicked off in September with Jorge Zamanillo, founding director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Latino, and will be bringing fascinating discussions to audiences all season long. Quote, the series has been a mainstay for a long, long time at History Colorado, where we bring in great speakers from around the state and country, all with an eye toward telling Colorado stories we can all connect with, explained Jason Hansen, chief creative officer with the organization. We're excited to return after two years of virtual talks, which just weren't the same as the series our patrons have come to know and love. The series runs through Wednesday, May 17, 2023, and can be attended in person at the History Colorado Center, 1200 North Broadway, or virtually. Each lecture will be held on the third Wednesday of the month at 1 p.m. Some of the discussions attendees can look forward to include October 19th, Colorado's unlikely gender crossroads, the remarkable story behind the book, Going to Trinidad. Veteran journalist and magazine editor Martin J. Smith discusses Trinidad's surprising role as a world center for gender confirmation surgery and the doctors and medical pilgrims who have changed their lives, who have had their lives changed there for 41 years. January 18th, The Life and Times of Colorado Barbecue. James Beard, award-winning author and culinary historian Adrian Miller, will provide an informative and entertaining look at people and places that shaped Colorado's barbecue traditions. March 15th, The Once and Future Hope of Deerfield, Colorado's African-American colony in the early 20th century. The African-American farm colony of Deerfield was founded east of Greeley in 1910 and black homesteaders were able to realize their dream of owning land and building their own community. The decade-long Deerfield Dream Project is working to tell the story of this unique place. This talk is presented by Bob Brunswick, Ph.D., Professor Emeritus and University Research Fellow at the University of Northern Colorado. Richard Edwards, Ph.D., Director Emeritus of the Center for Great Plains Studies at the University of Nebraska. And George H. Jun junior phd professor and coordinator of african studies at the university of northern colorado the series is really about helping people realize we're all connected to a shared past and helping them encounter stories they may not be familiar with or realize is connected to their life in some way 
Hansen said. You can hear amazing stories about the past and see how we're all connected by a place called Colorado and the experiences both us and our ancestors have had. For information and tickets to the Rosenberry Lecture Series, visit historycolorado.org slash Rosenberry dash lecture dash series. CSO plays an evening of quartets. For those looking for the grandeur and sweep of orchestral music with something a little more intimate, you won't want to miss. The Colorado Symphonies, an intimate evening of famous quartets held at the Parsons Theater, 1 East Memorial Parkway in North Glen at 7.30 p.m. on Thursday, October 6th. The performance will highlight the music of violins, violas, and cellos as they play works from famous composers through the ages. The concert will feature Yumi Huang Williams, who has been the concert master of the symphony for more than 20 years. Get tickets for the concert at northglenarts.org. Evergreen celebrates 49 years of water media excellence. If an art exhibit has been going for 49 years, somebody must be doing something right. The Center for uh, the Arts Evergreen is hosting the 49th Rocky Mountain National Water Media Exhibit, which runs at the gallery, 31880 Rocky Village Drive in Evergreen through Saturday, October 29th. The annual show is one of the top water media exhibitions in the country and goes beyond the traditional transparent watercolor by including acrylic, egg tempera, gouache, and mixed media. The show is juried by watercolorist Soon Y. Warren, who selects selected 62 works out of 500 submissions. For more information, visit evergreenarts.org. And Clark's Concert of the Week, Carly Rae Jepsen at Mission Ballroom. I know there are countless reasons to love pop stars like Beyonce and Taylor Swift, but my favorite is Canada's Carly Rae Jepsen. I'm so excited that Jepsen is releasing a new album, the fantastically titled The Loneliest Time, on October 21st. And she'll be at the Mission Ballroom, 4242 Winecoop Street in Denver, a week before at 8 p.m. on Wednesday, October 12th. The initial singles have been quite promising, and I can't wait to hear them along some of her flawless classics. Get tickets. Ticketmaster.com Clark Reader's column on culture appears on a weekly basis. He can be reached at Clark with an E.reader at Hotmail.com Official State Fish Makes Second Comeback. Colorado Succeeds in Reintroduction by Kevin Simpson and Michael Booth, The Colorado Sun. For decades, experts feared Colorado's greenback cutthroat trout to be extinct, a casualty of mining pollution, anglers, and more competitive species. So when biologists made the improbable discovery of a naturally reproducing population in a short stretch of Bear Creek west of Colorado Springs 10 years ago, they clung to the hope that the near miracle could be replicated. On September 23rd, Colorado Parks and Wildlife confirmed that the Bear Creek greenbacks now have company. Reintroduction efforts in Herman Gulch, the population hiking destination just off Interstate 70 near the Loveland ski area, have yielded fish that are reproducing on their own and sparking renewed optimism that other greenback stocking projects will soon follow suit. Some natural resources officials said the news affirmed their bedrock mission to support wildlife across the state and reflected years of collaborative effort among agencies. The stocking in Herman Gulch started in 2016 and now includes its first population of greenback cutthroats, this the official state fish, old enough to reproduce. It's kind of a waiting game for those fish to mature and reproduce, said Josh Nering, assistant aquatic section manager for CPW. So we're just super excited and hoping to get a lot more populations out on the landscape. In a typical system, when we're trying to start a population, we will often stock 
three-year classes. So stock fry, young fish, for three years in a row, nearing added. And typically in three years, they become sexually mature. And so hopefully after three years of stocking or four, we should have adults in the population to where they can start reproducing on their own. Colorado Trout Unlimited lauded the announcement as great news for the state's watersheds and a reward to the nonprofit's volunteers who lugged water tanks bearing greenback fry up Herman Gulch multiple years in a row. For everybody who helped in some way getting fish into Herman Gulch, it's a great first step toward the long-term conservation goal, Executive Director David Nickham said. Wildlife advocates will be watching to see if reproduction is sustainable for such places in Colorado, he said. That greenback cutthroat trout have managed to reproduce in the Herman Gulch High Country is the latest development in a complicated, decade-long effort to reintroduce the threatened fish to its native streams. Like many species in the West, the greenback cutthroat used to be native and thriving in multiple streams in Colorado's South Platte River drainage, which stretches from the foothills and canyons of the Front Range to high mountain waters near the Continental Divide. The Colorado Parks and Wildlife Project for years has kept the public away from stretches of Bear Creek in a canyon west of Colorado Springs where a reproducing population of the fish was discovered in 2012, following on and off speculation the species might be extinct. CPW teams electroshock small pools in Bear Creek to extract eggs known as roe and sperm known as milt from the fish before returning them to the creek. Some of the reproductive material is taken to state and federal hatcheries to develop genetically diverse broodstock. Teams have taken fingerlings from the hatchery and water-filled backpacks to various promising habitats in the high country. Herman Gulch, Dry Gulch, the West Fork of Clear Creek, and Williams Gulch. Placing the fish in multiple habitats reduces the likelihood that events ranging from sediment to wildfire to disease pose an ex ex existential threat to the, new spe to the species. But until now, the Bear Creek greenbacks have been closely guarded as the only self-sustaining population. CPW aquatic biologist Corey Noble led a team last spring that strapped on electrofishing backpacks and battled thick underbrush as they worked their way up the creek collecting fish for the project. Seeing the results of that ongoing effort proved especially gratifying. It's definitely highly rewarding to see that we're making a difference now and that we have more than one population that we're actually making headway in restoring that species out on the landscape, Noble said. It's kind of my life's work and this makes it all seem worthwhile. Although Bear Creek no longer holds the distinction of harboring the only self-sustaining population of greenback cutthroat trout, Noble said he does not expect any changes in the management of the drainage that might loosen restrictions for hikers or bikers. We're still quite a number of years off from having fully restored greenback cutthroat trout populations throughout the state, he said. So I think that Bear Creek does remain critical for the recovery of the species. Workers at the Mount Shavano State Fish Hatchery in Salida and the Leadville National Fitch Fish Hatchery also celebrated the Herman Gulch discovery after spending years on the often difficult work of nurturing the broodstock, a smaller population raised in optimal conditions for breeding and eventual dispersal. Genetic material extracted from cutthroat in Bear Creek makes quite a journey before its fingerlings find their way to the waterways that might be conducive to their survival. Generally, Bear Creek yields few eggs, but the milt from the males gets transported to Salida, where workers relay it to Leadville, where it's introduced to eggs, which then return to the Salida hatchery to grow. The survival rate is notoriously low, about 10%, said Brian Johnson manager of the Salida Hatchery. We spent a lot of time counting eggs, said Johnson, leader of the seven-person crew at the hatchery. It's a year-long process to reduce the fish that actually go back into our broodstock. 
It takes about a full-time equivalent every year to work on these cutthroats. A lot of times, it hasn't always been rewarding. Now to see this, it makes everybody happy to see the goal come to fruition after all these years. End quote. Thriving trout are an indicator of a healthy watershed, while loss of trout is an early warning sign of a declining cyst stream, Nickham said. Declines of fish and flies for their food on the Colorado River near Granby prompted years of work, resulting in the recent groundbreaking for reconnection of the river at the Windy Gap Dam, which had disrupted natural water flows. More habitat for the greenback cutthroats broadcast from Bear Creek Origins is on the way in Lost Creek Wilderness. Once state officials make sure a stream there that is part of the South Platte River drainage is free of whirling disease, Nickham said. Other greenback cutthroat projects are supported by Trout Unlimited, are at various stages at the headwaters of the Cachalapooter in northern Colorado, where CPW has developed additional broodstock. Joe Bushyhead, an endangered species attorney with Wild Earth Guardians, called news that the greenback cutthroats have begun to reproduce in Herman Gulch, heartening. But he said the work to restore the state fish is not done. Quote, these native fish have a long path to recovery in the wild, and news of a reproducing population marks progress. This story is from the Colorado Sun, a journalist-owned news outlet based in Denver and covering the state. For more and to support the Colorado Sun, visit coloradosun.com. The Colorado Sun is a partner in the Colorado News Conservancy, owner of Colorado Community Media. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.